Let me pray for us. Father, you are already here by your spirit at work doing a beautiful work in us. And we take this time just to say, yes, we're open to you. We're coming under the authority of your scriptures. We're knowing that we need to be refreshed and restored by you. We also need to be brought back onto the path. We need gospel and life breathed into us, even Jesus, as you breathed it into the disciples on that first night of the resurrection. So come and do again what you always do. We wait for you, and we love you. Amen. Um, so I do bring greetings from Julie. She said, as I went out the door this morning, make sure you tell them hello to me. Don't forget. So you can tell her now. I, I didn't forget. Um, I Interestingly enough, when I was preparing for the sermon, I must have looked at the lectionary and, and had just like a slightly different take on things. So I'm only going to preach from verse 19 through 23 in John chapter 20. So we won't get to Thomas and the whole um, doubting Thomas. We're just going to focus on that first evening. So if you're in your bulletins or you have your Bibles with you or at home, open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. Uh, We'll just be working through verses 19 to 23. My grandpa was a farmer in northwest Illinois. He died about 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, But before he died, early in our marriage, Julie and I went out there with a camera to interview him and ask him questions about his life. Now, he grew up farming and then continued farming when uh, he became a man, Uh, but he lived through the transition from animal-based farming to mechanized farming. And so as I was asking about his life, I, I said, so which did you like better? And he said, animals, working with the animals, using the animals. Uh, to accomplish my tasks. And I said, well, I'm sure that was less efficient. Why, why did you prefer the animals? His answer was very simple. He said, I loved working with the animals. You can have a relationship with a horse in a way that you can't with a tractor. And yeah, they require more care, and they're probably less efficient than a tractor, but he said, I liked that better. I liked using animals to accomplish my work. Now, when I say that word using, that can sometimes have a negative connotation. Maybe you felt used by another human being at one point or a company just used you. They sucked you dry and then left you on the curb when you had no more to give. But there's also a positive way that we use that word used. I want to be used by God, we say. I want to be put to use. I want to be useful. And of course, with the Lord, he's like my grandpa with the animals. He uses us to accomplish his purposes, to work a work. But in the same way that my grandpa loved the animals and he cared for them, God doesn't just use us to accomplish his ends. We're not just means to his ends. He's not utilitarian. He actually cares for us in the same way that my grandpa enjoyed and loved caring for the animals that he did also use to accomplish his work. So in our story today, in the gospel story, we see Jesus doing something really important. Before he sends his disciples out into the mission that is before them in the beginning of the church to take the gospel to the four ends of the earth, before he does this, he first ministers to them the very same things that he wants them to bring to the world. And so too with us, he ministers to us the very same things that he wants us to minister to others. He wants to care for you today so that he can send you out to be a co-laborer with him tomorrow. And this is 
there's three reasons why he does this. One, it's just more effective. Okay? If you take care of your animals, they're going to do better work for you. Um, also, we can't give what we don't have. So if God wants to, us to minister peace and hope and joy and faith and all these things, we can't give to others what we ourselves don't have. So Jesus wants to make sure we are equipped with these first. So it's effective. Um, it's also important because it gives us a testimony to share as God meets us and ministers to us, we can say to others, what he's done for me, he can do for you. So it's effective. It gives us testimony. But third and probably most important, he ministers to us first before he sends us out because he loves us and he cares for us. And it's just that simple. He, again, he's not a utilitarian God. He's, he's not going to overlook your needs and just use you in that negative sense of the way. He's going to love and care for you because he loves and cares for you, first and foremost. Now, the central idea of our passage here as we look at this text, the central idea, sometimes it's at the beginning, sometimes it's at the end. In this story, it's right in the middle of these verses. It's when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. He is preparing them for the great mission to bring the gospel to the world. And that is the focus. What we're going to see him do, though, in this short but packed and beautifully sequenced story, I mean, they're locked, they're afraid, he shows up, he speaks peace, he shows them his hands, then he speaks peace again, he ministers the Holy Spirit by his breath and then commissions them with the, the message of forgiveness. Really tight, packed story, beautifully sequenced. And, and in this short story, we see Jesus caring for and ministering to his disciples in order to equip them for that mission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. But to be clear, the mission is the main thing. Jesus' resurrection, it's, it's not just for our own spiritual benefit. Jesus was raised from the dead to make the whole creation new. And even this story of him appearing to the disciples on that first night is not simply for their personal consolation. They were sad, and he wants to make them happy. It wasn't simply for their personal consolation, although, be sure, they were deeply consoled, absolutely. But there's more going on. Alongside of them receiving that personal consolation and the joy of he's alive, he's risen, the one whom we thought was dead is now with us. Alongside that personal consolation, he's equipping them for mission to a dying and despairing world. He's giving them everything they need to proclaim to a dying and despairing world the word of hope, the word of new life, and the kingdom without end. So we're going to just simply walk through this passage. We're going to see how it is that Jesus ministers to them um, and equips them. As we do, we're, we're going to realize how in many ways we're a lot like those disciples locked up in that room. So here this morning, we're gathered, it's even the first day of the week, and we're waiting for Jesus' presence to come and do something. The reason you're here this morning, the reason you're tuning into live stream when you could be doing so many other things, is you're waiting for Jesus to do something, just like they were waiting. They didn't know for Jesus, but they were waiting. Many of us feel like we're behind locked doors. Many of us are afraid and needing, desperately needing peace, joy, and the power to believe in God. So as we walk through this passage and see what Jesus does for them and gives to them, we'll see 
he's doing and giving the same to us. So the first thing that Jesus ministers to his disciples and equips them with is peace. So look now at verse 19. So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders and authorities, the same ones that just three days ago had arrested and crucified their leader. They were very afraid the same was going to happen to them. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So the first thing Jesus ministers is his peace. And the word does mean shalom. A full and deep sense, the fullest sense of well-being. Shalom, it's all the broken pieces being put back together. Shalom means wholeness. Now, it's true that this was the common greeting. So you would see a friend on the street, you'd say, shalom, peace to you. But we can also see that Jesus is doing so much more than just greeting the disciples and saying, hey, hey, what's up? I'm, I'm here. He is ministering that peace in a deeper, more profound way. Three nights before, in the Last Supper, he had told them, my peace I give to you. My own peace I leave with you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So how does the world give peace? Well, when you see your friend on the street and you wish them shalom, you're saying, I, I wish for you that well-being in the fullest sense. I, I wish for you wholeness. But the world gives in a sense, all I can do is wish that for you. I can't actually give that to you. And Jesus says, I give not as the world gives. I don't just wish shalom. I don't just wish peace. On that first night, the very first word he speaks to these disciples is a word that actually gives them what he desires for them to have. Peace. I give to you my peace. And we can imagine that the first thing that they're going to receive that ministry is going to be about the fear that they're feeling. He's ministering to that fear. They're behind locked doors. They are afraid. And Jesus knows, before I do anything else, I have to speak to that fear. And how often is it the case throughout the scriptures when an angel shows up or when God himself speaks, so often the first thing he says is, do not be afraid. This is so common that even my, my small children who are beginning to know the scriptures, they, they know it's a joke. If I'm reading them a story, I will say, and the angel said, be afraid, be very afraid. And they'll just laugh because they know it's always the opposite. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Such a common first thing out of the mouth of an angel or even out of God himself. Because Jesus knows he must calm our fears before he can do anything else for us or through us, he has to speak to those fears. And so without reproach, he doesn't reproach them for their fear. With gentleness and understanding, he speaks to the fears. But now notice, if you look at the passage later on in, in verse 21, he says it again. Peace be with you. So now that he's dealt with their fears, he's cleared the way and he can do a deeper work of shalom. Now he speaks to healing and forgiveness, which is also what shalom and peace means. Healing, that sense of wholeness, the broken pieces being put back together. That's the essence of shalom. And yes, 
at his core, what does peace mean? What does shalom mean if not reconciliation with God? Peace. Jesus is saying, of all the broken things in our lives and in this world that need to be put back together, nothing is more tragic, nothing causes more destruction than our broken relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, I've come to restore this. I've come to bring healing and reconciliation and wholeness to your relationship with God. In one of our Eucharistic liturgies, we say, when our sin and disobedience had taken us far from you, you did not abandon us to the grave. Or Paul says in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our trespasses, cut off from the life of God and no way to get back to God by ourselves, it was then that God, out of his great mercy and love, sent Jesus for us. So this idea of of reconciliation, it is the core meaning of peace and shalom. And it was whole, Jesus' whole mission to the world was to make a way back to God. So again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that what Jesus was doing on the cross, it was God reconciling the world to himself through the work of the cross. So when Jesus shows up and he says, shalom, peace, He's doing something both personal and cosmic at the same time. Personally, he's forgiving these disciples. The last 72 hours had not been their best. In fact, they'd been their worst. They had deserted Jesus. They had failed him utterly. And his first word back, again, it's not a word of reproach. It's peace, forgiveness. I forgive you. I forgive You, James, and John, and Thomas, and Peter, I forgive you for deserting me in my hour of need. I forgive you. So he's speaking a personal word of forgiveness to bring peace. But he is also in that symbolizing that cosmic work that he had come to do, his whole mission to the world, to speak peace, that relationship with God is restored, a way back to God has been made through what I just did in the last few days. It reminds us of the angels announcing At Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest, and what to people on earth? Peace. At the outside of his life, they're announcing the commencement of the divine mission to bring redemption. And now here it is, Jesus himself, no longer a helpless babe in a manger, but Jesus himself, after the battle, the victorious conquering hero returning to pronounce now not the commencement of the divine mission, but its completion. It is finished. The work is done. The way back to God is open again. Friendship with God is restored. Peace. He ministers this peace. And of course, not a facile peace. A hard one fought for on the other side of battle and conflict. We were enemies. Peace. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The peace that you have now received, bring the message of that peace and bring that peace to the world around you. But today, as then, Jesus wants to minister to us this morning. So first, where are you needing peace this morning? If you're here today or joining us in the live stream and and you would not describe yourself as a Christian, but one who is maybe seeking after God or seeking to understand the things of God, then For you, let me just declare once again the most simple and basic message. The way back to God is open. The way back to God is open. He wants friendship with you, and he has done everything 
to make that possible if you simply receive that gift. Jesus died for you so that you can live with him forever. And maybe for others of you this morning, the peace that you're needing is that peace of forgiveness. Maybe after Lent is over, the first week of Lent, or first week of, of Easter tide, and maybe you overindulged on some of those things that you'd given up during Lent. And you're feeling a little embarrassed about that. You're here this morning a little ashamed. Or maybe it has nothing to do with the Lenten disciplines. Maybe there's just sin in your life, and you feel ashamed every time you come into the presence of God. And you're bringing that shame, and you're needing Jesus to minister to you forgiveness and mercy. And I tell you what, even right now, in your heart, confess whatever it is that's weighing on you and making you feel like you don't belong here. Confess that in your heart and know that Jesus forgives you and that he wants to be merciful to you so that you can tell others, God has been merciful to me. As God shows you mercy, then you can talk about it to others and tell them about the forgiveness you've received. Or maybe you're here this morning and it's that healing work where when I say it's the broken pieces being put back together, you'd say, I'm still in the broken pieces stage and I need to be put back together. And I want you to know Jesus wants that for you. He wants to heal you. He wants to bring whatever insecurities, anxieties, whatever parts of you that weigh on you, the depression, the heaviness, whatever it is that makes you feel broken apart, Jesus wants to put that back together and bring healing and wholeness. And if you're here saying, I'm too broken to be used by God, let me just say two things to you. He can use broken people. He loves to use broken people. That's the first thing to know. You don't have to be perfect before he will be happy to use you. But the second thing I want you to know, he doesn't want you to stay broken either. He will use you broken as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay broken. He wants you to come to that place of peace, of wholeness and healing. Or maybe you're here this morning, and it's maybe not so much forgiveness or healing, but that fear is crippling you. And maybe it's the same fear that the disciples had. They were afraid of persecution. They were afraid of the powerful people outside on the other side of that door. And maybe you live your life in fear of what your coworkers would think, your neighbors and others would think if they knew what you really believed, or if they knew that you were one of those kinds of Christians. And you live in fear of persecution. And Jesus wants to minister to that fear. He wants you to imagine your life unafraid, knowing that you're going to be attacked, knowing that you're going to be persecuted, but unafraid because of his power and the peace that he gives you to face that persecution. He won't remove the persecution. He gives you the peace to withstand it. Or any of the other fears that riddle us, of insecurities, the fear of failure, any of the normal run-of-the-mill fears that sometimes are the driving and predominant voices in our heads. Jesus wants to speak peace to those fears so that whether it's fears or the need for forgiveness or healing, as you have received, so then you can go out to the world and proclaim peace. So Jesus ministers peace. Next, he ministers faith, and he equips the disciples with faith. So look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they were glad and they were joyful. We'll get to that in a moment. But you can't be joyful and glad until you first believe. So faith comes first. And Jesus is showing them the wounds 
to say it is really me. I'm not a ghost. Because it's plausible, they might have believed in seeing a spirit. They might have believed in seeing a ghost. People back then, even as they do today, believed in spirits and ghosts. Remember the story of the disciples out on the water when Jesus walked on the water? At first, they thought he was what? A spirit or a ghost. So that would have been plausible. Well, maybe, maybe we're just seeing his ghost. What they were not thinking and not imagining is that they would see the resurrected Jesus in his flesh, truly with them, the same one who was with them before. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, I am he. I'm not a ghost. It's me. And in Luke's account of the same story, Jesus eats a piece of fish to prove it. It's really me. And in ministering to them, his wounds, he's ministering to them faith in the resurrection. This really did happen. As Jesus is wanting to send you out on mission to the world, faith, it's critical. Our mission requires faith. Believing in the God who works wonders for the faithful, the God with whom nothing is impossible, the God who is able to do more than we typically ask or think or expect. He wants us to believe more deeply with a zeal and a hunger to see his kingdom come. But what I love about this story is it also shows us that Jesus himself is eager to do whatever he can to give us that gift of faith. Faith is a gift. We can't manufacture that faith but we can seek that gift from his hand. Here, he's doing everything he can to impart that faith to his disciples. And there's a myriad of ways that Jesus can impart faith to you. Sometimes he'll do it through the scriptures, sometimes through songs of worship, sometimes from a word of encouragement from a brother or a sister, sometimes by participating in Sunday worship, and above all, in a life of prayer. There are a myriad of ways that Jesus imparts faith to us. But what I want you to know this morning is that he wants to do that. He wants to give you that gift. He wants to increase your faith. But you must first seek that gift and say, Lord, I, I want that greater faith. I want that greater zeal for your kingdom to come, that belief that you are able and that nothing is impossible. Will we ask for that gift this morning? And furthermore, with the wounds... He's not just increasing the faith of the disciples in our faith in the fact of the resurrection. He is doing that. He's saying it's a fact. It really happened. But more than that, he's also ministering to them by pointing to the wounds. He's ministering to them faith in his love. See my hands, he's saying. See my suffering. See my love. Believe that I did this because I love you. Believe in my love for you. Some of you, it's easier for you to objectively think about the resurrection and say, yes, I, I genuinely believe that that happened. And it's harder for you to personally believe that Jesus loves you. And as much as Jesus wants to minister the truth of the resurrection, that it actually happened, which he totally does, he also wants to minister to you his love and that it is for you, and that it is for the whole world, of course, but it is for you personally. So Jesus ministers faith. He equips them with faith. As we keep walking through this passage, now we come to the joy. The disciples see the wounds, and what does it say? 
they were glad when they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy. We can imagine the unbelievable, astonishing joy that they must have felt in that moment. And joy is also critical to our mission, isn't it? Jesus deeply desires to minister joy to us and to equip us with resurrection joy. The world around us often is in despair. And with good reason. The reasons for despair run deep. Therefore, the reasons for joy, they have to run deeper still, don't they? But in the resurrection of Jesus, who was dead, but now he's alive again, and he holds the keys to death and hell. And in his promise to us, because I live, you also shall live, and that death is not the end, and that a kingdom is coming, and a world is coming without end. And in that world, all the reasons that we despair in this life and all the brokenness of this world that causes us to despair will be no more. That's the promise. And that is deep enough to look into the face of every despair and to say there's a joy that runs deeper still. And that childlike, simple joy, when we truly believe that and can see far enough to the other side, that joy alone conquers despair. So Jesus knows this is critical to our mission. The, the world's not going to be impressed by despairing, also cynical, unbelieving people. And that's not a reproach on you if you're struggling with cynicism and despair, but it is to say, ask for the gift of joy. Jesus clearly wants to minister that to us. And we definitely need that to be equipped to bring his message to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to Easter joy, I sometimes find myself distressed that I'm unable to, to live in that place permanently. I mean, even just this week, I was thinking about it. The joy of a week ago, the joy of Easter, the joy that I felt on that day. And then how was this week for you? Did that joy remain? Where did it go? And I find myself asking the same thing. Where did that Easter joy go? And we try to, to get it back through a number of ways. First, we try to attempt to recreate that original experience of the disciples. And so we, we imagine what it would have been like to think he was dead and then to see him alive. And, but I tell you what, even if you are a master at Ignatian spirituality and you've done Deacon Valerie's transformation intensive out at, at Resurrection, no matter how hard you work to imagine, you, you can't fully put yourself back there in the shoes of the disciples because in the back of our minds, we always know, yes, he died, but yes, he came back again from the dead. So I cannot, as close as I can come, I cannot fully recapture that sense of, of wonder, astonishment, and just the sheer joy of overturning of, of everything. I can't, I can't get there with my imagination. Sometimes we attempt to just sit and, and contemplate the objective fact of the resurrection. I really believe it happened. I really believe that it really happened. Really, I believe this. But we can come to 100% clarity about the objective fact of the resurrection, which is good, and yet, it doesn't always produce the experience of joy, does it? Why is that? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you on that. But what I do believe I have an answer for, and I, honestly, I think this was just a small revelation that God gave to me this week as I was asking myself this question, that the way through to Easter joy is actually not in trying to recreate the original experience. It's not in just simply pounding the objective fact of the resurrection into our minds, the way through to Easter joy 
is to love one another. This, this may feel a little disconnected. That's why I feel like it was a revelation that God gave me. He said, do you want to know the way through to Easter joy, that, that same joy is to love one another. That's how we get Easter joy. To make Easter joy fresh, we must enter into the joy of loving, the joy of being all gift for the person right in front of me, the joy of serving, the joy of saying, whoever in my life right now I can bless, I I love to do that. And when we enter into the joy of loving one another, that's where that fountain, that unquenchable fountain of joy comes. Mother Teresa is one of our heroes. We named our second daughter after her. And people would talk about this with her. They, They would say, you would be in her presence and you would feel joy. And it was a small thing, but one of the things that she always taught her sisters was the ministry of smiling. She would say, smile to everyone that you are with. And to us, that that sounds chintzy or or trite. But put yourself in the shoes of a dying, suffering, neglected, and lonely beggar who's been left for dead, literally. And have someone come along and not only care for you, but to smile while they do it. And that smile, it says everything. It says, I'm glad to be serving you. This is not a chore for me. I'm actually glad to be serving you. You are not a burden. And in your life, whether it's the children you're caring for, the responsibilities at work, the coworkers, your neighbors, we have opportunity all the time to love and to serve, but most of the time, don't we do that as a chore? Not with joy. It feels like a burden and not joy. And so the way through to Easter joy is actually to say, how can I love the people right around me? How can we as a church love one another with Easter joy? So Jesus ministers and he equips them with peace, with faith, with joy, also with the message of forgiveness. So at the end, he says, whoever sins, you forgive, they're forgiven. Whosoever sins are withheld, are withheld. Now, there's a specific application to the apostles. We're not going to get into that right now for the sake of time, and also because the interpretation is is debated and it's a little tricky. But that specific application aside, there is a broader application to all of us. And it is that the gospel message that we've been given to bring to the world is that message of forgiveness. To say to the world, the way is made again. Your sins are forgiven. What does someone who's far away from God need to hear They need to hear that all the wrong things that they have done can be forgiven. They need to experience that forgiveness from you when they wrong you and you forgive them. Now, we said more about this when I was talking about peace and the ministry of reconciliation, so we won't go into depth here. But to also just say, let's not overcomplicate our message. The message to the world is your sins can be forgiven. The wrong things you've done can be forgiven. That's what Jesus died for. And that is such a hopeful and powerful message to those who are not used to hearing it. You're used to hearing it. They're not used to hearing it. So he equips us with the message of forgiveness. And lastly, look at verse 22. After he had said the the commissioning sentence, I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The most important thing he does in this whole story is right here. He breathes on them and says, 
receive the Holy Spirit. So the last ministry and the most important ministry, the last equipping and the most important equipping is that Jesus ministers to us the Holy Spirit. He equips us with the Holy Spirit. Breath, he breathes on them. Breath and spirit, the same word. And it brings into mind the story of when God created Adam from the dust, but he was just a clump, uh, a lump of clay until God breathed in him. It also brings in mind the story of the dry bones and Ezekiel seeing flesh put upon the bones, but there was no breath in them, and so they had no life. And so here in the same way that God did with Adam, the same way that he said for Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath, now Jesus breathes upon the apostles and he gives them the breath of new life and the breath of the new creation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it sums up and encapsulates all the other gifts that we've been talking about and more. When Jesus ministers to us the Holy Spirit and equips us with the Holy Spirit, he's ministering nothing less than the very presence of God. And it could be said truly that the whole point and the goal of the incarnation of God coming to earth and of the cross and of the resurrection and Jesus returning to the Father, the point of all of that, what it was for, the goal was Pentecost. Jesus did all of that so that you could be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that you could receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God himself made real and personal to you. The very presence of God. Nothing is more precious than this. The breath of new life and the breath of new creation. Without it, we're Adam, just a lump of clay. Or we're the, we're the bones with flesh on, but we're not yet alive. So Jesus equips us with life. The life of the new creation. Do you need life this morning? Do you need that life that comes from a source outside of this world where the law is decay, unending life breathed into you? You need the Holy Spirit. And Jesus loves over and over again to fill us with the Holy Spirit. He said, as the Father sent me, indeed as the Father equipped me, so I am sending you, so I am equipping you. And even in the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's beginning to fulfill that word. Because Jesus, in order to do his mission, was anointed with the Holy Spirit in his baptism. Remember that? Before Jesus did anything, the Father sent upon him the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, same thing for you. Before I send you out on this mission, I will equip you by anointing you with the Holy Spirit. Anointing you and filling you with the very life of God. So I'd love to invite you just to close your eyes right now and just pray. Open your hearts to the Lord. We've talked about a number of things this morning that, that Jesus loves to minister to us. And it may be that one of these stood out to you in particular. And I invite you to open yourself now to Jesus, who is with us as he was with those disciples, to ask for that ministry. Is it a ministry of peace? the peace of healing, the peace of forgiveness, the peace that calms your fears? Is it faith? The gift of faith that you want to seek and receive from Jesus, to believe not only in his power, but also in his love.
is a joy. Do you know too well the place of despair and heaviness? Do you know too well that joy is not something you can create on your own? Open yourself now to ask for and receive from Jesus the ministry of joy. Do you need to be equipped with the gospel message? Or maybe just simply, you're looking for that unending eternal life of the Holy Spirit to flow through you. Take a moment now to simply ask Jesus, what do you want him to minister to you? Jesus, you're more than able to minister and to give to us exactly what we've asked for, exactly what we need. I pray, Lord, that you would care for us and love us here now in this service and fill us up with your love that we may be truly sent out to minister that love, that message, to minister the peace and the joy and the hope that is in the world desperately needing it. Do all this and more, I pray. In your holy name, amen.